Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Lost in Science for another week. My name is Claire and this week is a special Women in Science edition. I'm lucky enough to be joined by women at different stages of their careers in science this week. We will be heading back to uni to hear from undergraduate student Alex Ware about her experience as a female engineering student and then jump ahead a couple of years to speak to Maddie Ewers all about her PhD and how to study dragons. And finally, I speak to Dr. Teresa Jones, lecturer, principal researcher and senior academic about some amazing research looking at artificial light and its effects on immunity. So stay tuned to hear what and who inspires these women to do what they do. I'm at RMIT University and it's the first day back for the year and I'm here with advanced manufacturing and mechatronic student Alex Ware. Alex, hello. Hi. Alex, what inspired you to go into engineering? Uh, so when I was in year nine, I got to participate in an elective that ended up being the Model Solar Car Challenge, which is sort of a nationwide competition. And I absolutely loved it. I'd never really thought of engineering as something I could do or wanted to do before then. And I had so much fun. And then when people turned around and told me I could do it as a degree, that I got to do it for four more years and then potentially be paid to do it, I just thought that was the most incredible thing I'd ever heard. So I sort of, nothing else came up. So raced into it for uni. What do you love about engineering? Uh, I love that it's this massive field of just creating and designing and solving problems and it's hugely applicable to every part of life but you also just get to build things which is great. How many women are in your course? Uh, So I'm studying advanced manufacturing and mechatronics uh, engineering at RMIT. We're not a massive course to begin with, probably about 40 people in my year level. Within that, we're generally looking at about two to three girls. So not a huge number, but it's slowly improving and it's we're a pretty good tight-knit group, I think. Do you have any female uh, lecturers? Uh, yeah, so uh, I've definitely had a few really great female lecturers. Uh, they're not the majority by any means, but uh, I had a really fantastic lecturer in first and second year, uh, Dr. Alex Kutsukas, which I, I cannot speak highly enough of her. Uh, she was fantastic and took us for some of our hardest subjects in the degree. So it was really great having someone who really knew what they were talking about. Also, she laced all her lectures with Monty Python jokes, which I think just improves everything. Why do you think it's important to have women in lecturing positions, in senior academic roles? or as engineers in general? Why is it important to have that gender equity? I think on some levels it speaks to being able to see yourself. Uh, You want to be able to go into these courses and see people that you can look up to and that represent you, and you can see that pathway for yourself. But I think at the same time it's also just about 
having a broad range of people makes for better subjects. It makes for better discussion. It makes for better ideas. Different people are going to look at different subjects and have different in different ways, and they're going to bring different backgrounds and different knowledge and different ideas, and it's always going to make for a better product at the end of the day. So I just think, on the one hand, female lecturers are great for the women coming up, but they're also great for engineering as a whole. And I think that that, especially as university is the place where engineers are starting from, that's the best place to be seeding that stuff to then push it out into the broader industry. Who are the women in engineering or science that have inspired you? Okay, um, so this has been part of my degree. I've been moving more towards uh, software engineering, especially through the mechatronics, um, and I've really, really enjoyed learning a lot of the programming stuff, which is something I hadn't really thought about before coming uni learning about Ada Lovelace and how basically software engineering grew out of the work of women and was hugely shaped by women and created by women in a lot of ways has been a really incredible thing to sort of grow from to realize that you're not pushing into a field for the first time, but you're actually kind of moving into a field that has this huge, fantastic history of women uh, is incredible. And to recognise that and moving forward, everything I get to create is going to be in some way influenced by those women's work so many years ago. I have a very special guest with me in the studio today. It's Maddie Ewers from Melbourne University in the School of Biosciences. Maddie, you are currently doing your PhD in dragons. Is that right? Yeah, dragons, tawny dragons, in fact. Oh, the tawny dragon lizard. The tawny dragon lizard, Tenophorus decrezii, for those that are inclined to scientific names. Oh, that's a great <laughs> name. Maddie, can you tell us a little bit about your research? Yeah, yeah, sure. So my PhD is on the tawny dragon lizard, as mm-hmm. we mentioned, and this species lives on big and small rocks in the Flinders Ranges of South Australia. So it's a desert species? Semi-arid Semi-arid desert. Yeah, it's pretty desert. hot. It likes hot rocks, likes yep. to bask on those rocks and stand oh. up real tall. He's not very big. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, he's probably about um, 10 centimetres in body and mm-hmm. then a 10 centimetre tail too, which he flicks around. But this is a particularly interesting species as the males, they have different coloured throats. <laughs> so we've got males that can have the, either an orange throat, mm-hmm. a yellow throat, a grey throat or a mix of orange yellow together. And the throat's a really important area for these lizards because they use it for communication. Yeah. What so are they when, saying to each other with their throats? Well, they make them all big and, and impressive. So they, they're oh. um, patrolling their territories on these rocks because, you know, big rocks are pretty good. And they want to impress <laughs> a lot females. of sun exposure. <laughs> yeah, lots of a view of all the other lizards around. So as we're talking about females today, I thought I'd mention that the females... They're not colourful, they just have a cream throat, but they're equally as feisty and they equally like to sit on big rocks. And they have beautiful and intricate camouflage on the top of them as well. So they're brown with mottled colours 
Anyway, back to the males. It's all about males in my research, I'm afraid. <laughs> but the males are doing everything they can to attract the female attention, is that yeah. right? Yeah, they are. So yeah. they have a display where they, they blow up their throats really big with air and they do head bobs and then they do push-ups too. So <laughs> using their, all their limbs, they go on their toes really high. They call it a hind limb push-up and they flick their tails violently as a display to both attract females and to sell other males to get lost. Sort of like what us, some humans might be doing at the gym. <laughs> exactly. They're pretty muscular little guys too. They work out a lot. <laughs> so we've got these colourful throats and they're genetic and they don't, they're all mixed up in the same population. And so this is quite an unusual situation and mm. allows us to ask the question, what's maintaining this diversity within a population? Why aren't they all one colour? Yeah. Multiple colours. So um, for my studies, I've been looking at ways that they might differ in addition to their colour. So been looking at their hormones, their size and shape and their vision where I confirm that they can see UV colour. But um, I've also been looking at behaviours. Right. And you just um, recently published a paper looking at the colour differences in this population of dragons and how it sort of correlates with behaviour. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's spot on. Yeah, so I used fake model lizards out in the fields. Oh, that's awesome. So you've got, you know, these big males perched. Well, they're not big, as we said, but these males (laughs) perched on rocks. Yeah, so I popped these fake lizards in front of them. I gave them... One fake lizard of every colour. And I looked at how they responded and sometimes they'd just kind of sit there and other times they'd run away. And then sometimes they'd fight them as well. And as I mentioned, they'd do the push-ups and they'd blow up their necks and flick their tails and then they'd launch at them and bite them. <laughs> so it was it was fun. I mean, you had to be really patient in the field because sometimes it could take a bit of time for them to see the model and it can take a bit of time for you to find the lizards as well. Yeah, I found that they differ in their in their aggression, in their aggressive behaviours. So the grey one is not aggressive at all. And he's also he's not very bold in front of predators either. So did that as well in the field. The yellow one though, the yellow one is sometimes aggressive and sometimes not aggressive. Mm. And then the orange one is aggressive to all lizards. <laughs> he's fiery. Wow. Mm. And it's quite interesting because orange is actually a signal of dominance across a whole range of animals. So orange or red is a dominant colour in fish, yeah. in birds and primates, including humans. <laughs> yeah, so it, it so matches be, up. So beware yeah. if you start wearing too much orange or maybe you can use that to your <laughs> advantage if you've got a power meeting that you need to go into. You can start wearing yeah. a bit of orange. Yeah, absolutely. Give off the right signals. Don't mess with me. <laughs> No, don't mess with the red people. Don't mess with the red people. Now, Maddie, as this is a Women in Science special today on Lost in Mm. Science, I am interested to hear your thoughts, especially about attracting school-age girls, so girls in high school and primary school, to continue engaging in science throughout throughout their studies. Yeah, I'm, I'm really passionate about this, actually, so thank you, Claire, for asking me the question. I think positive role models and mentors for for young women are, are particularly important. Yeah. Breaking down those stereotypes of, of a, I hate to say it, but maybe a man in a lab coat in a lab by himself, 
Maybe with crazy white hair. Yeah. A genius. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to be a genius to be a scientist. Scientists are creative and diverse people of, of all types. And, and you work with others. I mean, there's so much collaboration in science, working together to answering really important questions, drawing on everyone's skills. I think that's often lost. I'm actually part of a mentoring program. I run a program called InterScience, which um, I'm based at Melbourne Uni, but it's also um, at RMIT, La Trobe and Swinburne Uni. It's federally funded and we're placing university students into low socioeconomic high schools as science mentors to kind of break down those um, stereotypes and talk more broadly about science and everyday life. What are the outcomes of the InterScience program for the mentors and do you think the high school students are getting something out of it? Absolutely. I think that, yeah, it's really positive on both sides. So uh, the mentors, they go in to maybe to get a feel for the classroom or they're really passionate about talking about science um, or want to give back to the community. And uh, along the way, they get to know a whole range of students and they're um, pushed beyond their boundaries to talk about science in a whole heap of different areas, even if it's not their particular interest. Now, Maddie, I'm interested, what inspired you to get into science and complete your PhD? Uh, Well, I've always had a love of the natural world and I wasn't too sure, first off, um, what area area of science I'd like to go into. I went to uni and did a broad science degree, touched on a lot of areas with the thoughts that I might like to do genetics. And it wasn't until a third-year subject really sparked my interest in animal behaviour. But looking back... During the early years of my undergraduate degree, I remember not going to some lectures and watching seagulls on the lawns. So <laughs> maybe that was a sign. I think that's definitely a sign that you're supposed to be doing yeah, animal behaviour. So, seagulls are amazing to watch. Ah, oh, so many interactions. <laughs> so many different behaviours oh, going on. Yeah. Oh, such a power play. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe that comes back to the red, the red on their beaks. Yeah, maybe the redder ones. Maybe the redder ones, the more aggressive ones. Yeah. Anyway, oh, <laughs> yeah, future research that project. Would be a great one to do. <laughs> Finally, Maddie, I really want to ask you, who in your experience have been um, the women in science who've inspired you? Yeah, well, of course, I'm really inspired by the women who've had major international careers and, you know, breakthroughs that have, that have spanned a whole heap of areas. But for me... What's really inspiring is the everyday life of these women scientists. So, for example, there's a few members of my lab group, Teresa Jones and my supervisor, Debbie Stewart-Fox, who are fantastic, you know, international scientists. But And I'm super impressed and inspired by that. But also the way that they juggle their research, um, their mentors for a whole, a whole number of graduate students, myself included, um, they're a teacher for undergraduate courses in diverse areas. They're both a mother, mothers of children under under ten, two kids. And for instance, Devi is also an owner of a super productive veggie patch. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, and I find that the way that Teresa and Devi balance everything is super inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to have a chance to speak to Teresa later on. So, thank you so much for talking about your research today. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about dragons. Yeah, but, yeah, the dragons. Yeah, but, <laughs> but until then, thanks so much for coming on Lost in Science, Maddie. No, great to be here. Thanks, Claire.
I have with me in the studio today Dr. Teresa Jones, who is a senior lecturer at the School of Biosciences at the University of Melbourne. Welcome to Lost in Science, Teresa. Thank you. Now, the first question I want to ask you is, you are actually the principal investigator within your lab, which is the Jones Lab at the University of Melbourne. What are your main areas of research? So we study behavioural ecology, so animal behaviour. I've got students studying a range of different behaviours in a range of different animals. So we work on stick insects and spiders, drosophila, so the little fruit flies that you see in your fruit bowls, crickets, that lovely buzzing sound that you hear at the end of the day. So we work on, on that species too. And I also have a student who works on the black swan down at Albert Park, so a range of different animals. And we study a range of different behaviours in those different animals. You do some fascinating work where you look at the long-term effects of non-natural light, such as um, street lighting and how this street lighting and non-natural light affects the fitness and success of certain animals. Can you explain a bit more about this research? I find it really interesting. So it's, it's, for me, it's, it's a recent piece of my research, if you like, and it's kind of an umbrella now that's covering a lot of the things that we do. And it's based on the idea that over, you know, life evolved 3.6 billion years ago. And during that period, we've had a day and we've had a night. And yeah. in the last sort of 200 years, we've changed that. So now we have artificial lights and those lights are getting brighter and there's more of them in our environment. And so what we're looking at is whether that, that light, that change to that day and that night, which is no longer a true night anymore, it's hardly ever. In the middle of a city, you don't have a true night. It's quite bright. You can't even see the stars if you look up. In a night sky in, in the middle of Melbourne, you can only see about 10% of the stars that you would see if you were out even at somewhere as close as Phillip Island. And it even has like a sort of ready glow, doesn't it? Like- Absolutely. Yeah, you can. Um, so we do some work out at Serendip, which is out towards Lara. And it's very dark where we are, but you can see the glow of Melbourne as a backdrop. So that's about 60 kilometres away. Wow. Um, it has huge impact. And so what we're looking at is, you know, is that changing things? We know, for example, you've all seen moths attracted mm. to a light. We know that animals are changed by having lights in their environment, but we're looking at it in, in more detail. Is it changing not just their behaviour, but maybe their physiology? Is it changing their immune function? Yeah. Is it having impacts on a range of different things? And what have your findings been around this? And what have your theories been, I guess, as well? So, uh, well, I should say that it's not just me that's studying this. I'm a very oh. small cog in a very yeah. large um, piece of machinery. So there are lots and lots of people across the world that are studying this. Um, yep. There's a lot of medical research suggesting that there's correlations between how much light we have in our in our dark, in, you know, in our night, um, and there are impacts on, on fitness and, and immunity. Our own research is, is corroborating that, so we're finding effects on immune function. So if animals are raised in environments which have got light at night, it's not, not that bright night at night, sort of just like being underneath a street lamp, we're finding that their immune function is, is depressed a little bit. Um, it has implications on their growth, so it takes them longer to get through from an egg. In our case, we work on these little crickets. Mm. I was telling you about it takes them longer to get through to an adult phase, and that might have implications on whether they can lay all their eggs in that season or, you know, a whole range of other other things. And is it mostly invertebrate species that you're modelling in? Yeah. I do. So I avoid humans. I think we're yeah. a very complicated, <laughs> very complicated group, so I typically stick to things that can't answer back. Um, yeah. But so we work on insects, but the reason we work on them is actually one of the key things we think is happening is that the light at night is impacting a key chemical, and it's a chemical that most of us have heard of, melatonin. Melatonin, Absolutely. we know that it, it's, it goes up at night and it goes down in the day. Yeah. And we all know it as the jet lag. Right? It's one. Yeah. 
So it's really instrumental in keeping us on track to sort of our sleeping patterns. Our day-night rhythm, yeah. So malapoi is one of the chemicals that's important in that. And And we know that it's sensitive to light. So normally in the daytime, our production in in humans, in vertebrates, um, it goes down in daytime and it would usually peak at night. But we know it's also impacted by artificial light at night. So we know that in an artificial light, if you're exposed to artificial light, we know that it depresses. And what's interesting about melatonin is it's not just in humans. It's in all vertebrates, it's in invertebrates, bacteria. It's one of the ancient hormones that's driving, we think, this rhythm. So it has important implications. Now, a big part of your research and a passion of yours is looking at gender bias and equity in STEM, which is the science, technology, engineering and maths subjects. Can you tell us a bit about your own research? I guess it's something I've been passionate about for the last, I guess, since I became a postdoc. So after my PhD, my first um, job was actually in Sweden. It wasn't here. And I I met an incredible woman there called Professor Marlene Zuck, who's a, a fabulous research scientist, but it's also one of her passions. And so since then, she's been introducing me to the idea, okay, maybe things aren't as equal as we think they are and so I've been you know giving presentations in my lab boring people on you know the the issues of gender equity for a long time and then I I've only done a very small amount of actual research um, with other collaborators we were just looking at a conference actually so we were looking at conferences you supply abstracts Mm. or you 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 try and get talks and in this particular conference you could either apply for a five minute talk or a 12 minute talk so a little short talk Mm -hmm. a much longer one And what we noticed was that even though the number of men and women giving these talks overall was equal, actually when we looked at who was giving particular talks, we found that women were more likely to give short ones and men were more likely to give long ones. They were self-selecting this. They were self-selecting this. They were actually asking for them. And this was regardless of whether it was a student or an academic. So we wrote a very short paper on this, just, you know, why might this be and what were the implications? And it might not seem a lot, but if you multiply that over 10 conferences, for example, the amount of time that a woman is on stage is much less. So your visibility is reduced. And we just talked a little bit about the implications. So that's a very small part. And obviously that's just another example of where there may be inequity. Many of our audience might not be aware, but even though women comprise more than half of the PhD graduates and early career researchers in science, we only make up 17% of senior academics and and researchers currently. So in your opinion, how are universities and research institutions tackling this? I think there are a number. I I think we're doing it nationally now as well. So the Australian Academy of Science has just set up a program um, which is replicating something that's been going in the UK for a number of years, I think since 2005, maybe slightly after that. Um, In the UK, they have a program called Athena Swan, which is seeking to address gender inequity. Oh, well, inequity, actually, not just gender, um, in a range of different things. We're doing that now, I think, in Australia. So we have SAGE. Mm-hmm. Um, which is Science Australia Gender Equity um, Program. That's just going going ahead now and different institutions are applied to join this. And that's basically setting up a mandate that we will do something about gender equity. So I think... And is that up to the institutions to sign up and then, I guess, become transparent as to what their processes are for appointing women in certain positions of power? Or? It's It's... It is in part, yes. I mean, the, the institutions sign up and it's certainly to do with women in positions of power, but it, it's much more than that. It's mm-hmm. looking at equity across the board. How okay. do we how do we assess equitably and fairly any, any of the things that we're doing? Are we thinking about equity and diversity across the university, not just for positions of power? Although, obviously, it's really important to have those women in positions of power, I think, because they then can affect change and be part of that change. 
I think certainly my institution is setting up um, a range of different measures now where we're trying to address equity. I think I think we're at a position now where we're saying, okay, there is inequity, there is unfairness, let's do something about it rather than just accumulating data now. Um, so I think I think it is happening, which is a really positive and good thing. Yeah, and it's the best thing to be doing right now. Should we be doing more? Should we be setting up, I don't know, national minimum gender equity targets or specialist board positions for women? Is there more that we could be doing? I think it's a tough one. Mm. I think it's a, there are two camps on that. One is that, no, you should never set up anything for women only. And then there's another one was actually that's the way forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you model it in terms of university positions, unless we have some sort of positive or um, affirmative action program, the chance of getting a 50-50 in science is is very slim until about 2050, just because positions don't turn over very rapidly. So you have to be very selective about that. So that's one way of doing it. I think at the moment we're in a position where I think what we need to do is, is, is increase awareness and increase mentoring. And I think that mentoring has to go for both men and for women, because there's no point in educating one half of the equation. There's no point in educating a whole group of women or indeed men that are already on board that there's inequity issue. Um, I think, And I think that's where we're going now. And I think that is where the future will lie is, is educating everything. We have male champions for change now as a program. And I think that's really saying, well, look, men need to be involved in this in this this debate or or at least this this change and that's not global and I think that's not across all institutions but I think that is one of the ways forward and I think I think Melbourne Uni is is making a um, good inroads into this actually we are starting to move in that direction and I think that's really important because it's all very well having enlightened women um, who know the issues and know that there are problems but if you're in among a sea of men who are highly intelligent and are enlightened in a whole range of different things, but unaware of the issues, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to hinder progress. And finally, Teresa, can you tell me about the women in science who inspire you? I think I've been really lucky, actually. I've, I've spoken to a few of my colleagues about this. I've had, I've had an incredible group of people who have mentored me over the years, and, and some of them have been men and some of them have been women, but I, I have had an unusually large number of women who have inspired me even from my undergrad and then all the way through. But currently, I guess within the group of people that um, I interact with, uh, Laura Parry, um, Professor Laura Parry at Melbourne University, within my own group, Behavioural Evolution, not my own group, sorry, the larger group that I'm part of, there's um, Associate Professor Debbie Stewart-Fox, who's an amazing mentor to women. She's been a a recipient of the L'Oreal Fellowships our own Dean of Science at the moment at Melbourne Uni as well, Professor Karen Day. So we have a group, we have an amazing group of women who are there and are doing a great job, not only within their own research, but also promoting women and, and mentoring both men and women. And I think that's, that's, as I said, I think that's the thing that's important for the future. Thanks so much to all my guests today, Alex Ware, Maddie Ewers and Dr. Teresa Jones. Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR and airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Please get in touch with us. We would love to hear from you. You can email us on lostinsci at gmail.com or find us on Twitter or Facebook. We're there as well. Or maybe you just want to tune in next week to find yourself lost in science. 
Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.